And we are back with another episode of the Limited Upside Podcast. We're really starting to get to the good teams now with these offseason previews. And now we were able to bring to you the Indiana Pacers. We had Tom Lewis of Locked On Pacers, the podcast, and Indy Cornrows, the SB Nation NBA community. Again, this was one of these podcasts where this can go in a lot of directions. They could be a good team. They could be a bad team. Mike has some mixed views. Tom had some mixed views. But it's a different roster, and it's going to be a fun season. Did Larry Bird make the right moves? Time will tell. But before you listen to this, before we get to the meat of this podcast, and believe me, I had a good time talking about the Pacers because I'm a Sixers fan, and I am sad right now. So talking about any other team was a welcome distraction. And speaking of distractions, before you listen to this, go rate, review subscribe, all those good things. We love the feedback. It helps make this podcast better. Mike and I listen to these, uh, to your requests. We, we listen to your feedback and it, again, it propels us in the direction we're trying to go here with this podcast. So find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, rate and review it. Um, as always send us your questions. We get to these questions every podcast. You'll hear them throughout here. We interject them and they help us. So send those questions to at Mike Prada SBN on Twitter at limited underscore upside and at EpiBen. You can also send Mike an email question. That's Mike Prada at SBNation.com. Enjoy this podcast. Indie Cornrows is a fun community. I, I highly recommend going and reading their, uh, their columns and going to check out Locked on Pacers, which is Tom's podcast that just launched. Show some support, show some love and enjoy this edition of the limited upside podcast. Okay, the Indiana Pacers, we have Tom Lewis from Indy Cornrows, the SB Nation blog. And Tom, that was a a bit of an interesting year the Pacers had last year. It almost felt like they had three seasons in one, you know, and so they end up 45 and 37. They fight Toronto in a really hard fought playoff series that they lose in seven. Uh, they have, then they let go of Frank Vogel at the end of the year. It almost feels like some people look at that team last year and say, wow, I don't know how that team won 45 games. But I imagine Pacers fans may think, wow, that team should have won more than 45 games. So where is, where is it on that spectrum for you? Yeah, I mean, you stated it perfectly. Like it was three seasons in one. I mean, that's exactly how I, I often talk about it because you know they started out so great with all the questions about Paul George coming back will you be able to play will you be able to hold up and uh, he quickly answered that he'd be able to play and then he ends up holding up so you're thinking okay you, you've got your Paul George who's having the best actually the best season of his career they should be better <laughs> you know <laughs> um, and then you know they have little minor injuries they, they, they tried to go small they tried to use CJ Miles as a stretch four, and he valiantly played it, played well for a few weeks, and then you know couldn't take the beating, and all of a sudden you know Frank flips and, and wants to go big, and um, and then they have trouble adjusting and, and have that lull in the middle of the year, but but making into the playoffs, and then you know kind of finished strong, even though they lost the playoff series. They did play well. Paul George played out of his mind, so it it left you with hope, but. It was. There were a lot of. There was a lot of meat left on the bone in, in that season. If, <laughs> if you think about games that they um, they dropped, either mm-hmm. by getting down early, coming back and not quite getting it done, or by letting the lead slip late 
Um, it, 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 there was a lot of frustration <laughs> um, with that team. <laughs> I, I think that's what led to Frank, you know, being jettisoned. So you would say think that they underachieved because to your point, they I think they blew twenty fourth quarter leads last year. But again, from a macro sense, it almost feels like they overachieved. So do you think they underachieved? I, well, I thought you know before the season, I was I, I thought I was being pretty optimistic, which is my general nature. Why not? If <laughs> if, if, if me then if not me then who? Um, and I, I thought they'd win forty five games, which they were right right at that mark basically. And so. I, it's hard for me to say that they underachieved, but when you break it down and look at all the parts and and um, the things that did go wrong, it seems like you know there were there were more than five games there that they they could have won. Um, and so um, when you get that close into the weeds and looking at things, that's where the frustration is. But you know, I, overall it was a good season, definitely um, for what they were doing. You know, they're shifting on the fly bringing in, you know, Monte Ellis and losing some leadership in, in David West and, and, of course, um, Roy Hibbert's gone. So it's a whole whole new kind of style of play. And, again, all the unknowns with, with Paul George and, and uh, his health last year. So overall, yes, it was, it was a positive. But then if you're looking at it and going game to game, uh, there are frustrations to be had, no, no doubt. So does that blame, I mean, I, we're talking about positive and negative, and a, a lot of times that bubbles up to the top, right? There's a best player on each team and a coach, and the best player sometimes is the leader, not in all cases. Um, I mean, Golden State, for example, their best player is not, I don't think their leader. I believe that's Draymond. But in this case, their leader, best player is Paul George. He did have a good season, was able to show that, yeah, he's back to being a, a superstar, one of the best players in the league, if not potentially the second best player in the Eastern Conference. We'll get to that listener question in a bit. Um, but does that mean that the, the blame entirely should have fallen on Frank Vogel? Did he get a raw deal, would you say? Or, or should we expect a completely different Pacers team to be, I mean, obviously there's some different players, but the mentality of the team, um, leadership from the, from the top, will that be much different with Nate McMillan? Well, I think it's going to be different in, in a few ways. And okay. I mean, <laughs> I might have to pull up the uh, psychologist couch here <laughs> talk about this because you know Paul, we do that all the time by the way we are uh, we are the kings of armchair psychology here. I, we don't, I feel, don't have degrees <laughs> i feel like i have a pretty good idea of why and how things went down with frank in okay. a lot of ways he did get a raw deal because he did a great job in a, a lot of other ways and a lot of it wasn't his fault but they needed to make a change to in fact put paul george in a better leadership position mm. um and that might sound a lot, and it might take a minute for me to explain, but um, yeah. but basically, you know, when Frank took over Paul George's rookie year, he's the good cop assistant coach for both Roy Hibbert and, and Paul George. Um, when he took over from Jim O'Brien, it was like their favorite substitute teacher getting the <laughs> gig, and, you know, it was all positive. But I never think, especially with Roy and, and Paul, that they're – relationship with him ever it never really changed even though he was a head man they said they said they treated him like the head coach but i still feel like there was that interaction feeling that he wasn't he was more of the assistant coach buddy coach and then with those teams as they progress it was there was really a, a you know collaborative team leadership dynamic david west was a pretty strong leader even roy george hill paul george the four of them were leaders and I you know and again Frank 
was the guy, but they all were, were in it together. And it wasn't, as it revealed out, you know, and, and you're hearing more and more, um, you know, the discipline um, and maybe the accountability wasn't as strong. And then last year, even, you know, with, with Paul coming back, you know, that dynamic, he, he was just trying to see if he could play. So he wasn't, he was still kind of a co-leader with, with George Hill. And both those guys aren't real, you know, Rod Rod dynamic guys. And, and last year, Monte Ellis, within a week, was kind of the vocal leader in the locker room. And, and even mm-hmm. at games, sometimes he'd be, he'd be on the, uh, you know, the coach's chair during timeouts before the coaches came in to talk to the guys and r- really took that leadership. And he, he just spoke about that media day saying, you know, he, he sensed the void um, and figured somebody had to do it. So he did. But now, you know, he's seeing a whole different Paul George because he's, and, and I say this, it's no fault of George Hill. It's no fault of Frank Vogel. It's just kind of the dynamic, the relationship dynamic. Without sure. those guys around, there's no crutch. Um, you know, the training wheels are off, so to speak, for Paul George as far as being a leader, a vocal guy who can hold guys accountable um, and, and make his presence felt. And I know um, he, he also said that that was one thing that, you know, McMillan was really pushing him on this summer. And then with his experience with the Olympic team and seeing how some of those big personalities behaved. Um, sure. I think we'll see if he can handle that, that role as the, not only the, the playing leader, but also uh, the vocal leader of the team. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. What you, all the stuff you're saying psychologically, I also just think that this was sort of a, the more time I step away from this, the more I understand the move to let Van Gogol go. He was, I believe in the last year of his contract, so if you yeah, want to yeah. keep him... Yeah, he wasn't have, fired officially. <laughs> right. So if you want to keep him, you have to commit to him for multiple years because you can't have a lame duck coach on a one-year deal. You're talking three years plus. And it was like you said, there was a bit of a there's a bit of a transition period with the team, maybe a transition that was sort of overwrought and maybe didn't need to happen, but a transition nonetheless. And if you're not totally sold that Frank Vogel can be the guy for the next step, and I think there was reason to believe that. Like like you said, they, they blew a lot of games last year. And Frank, as great of a defensive coach as he is, the offense never developed um, under him. Now, maybe you could say, well, he never had great offensive players. But I every year their offense was sort of a really a train wreck at a lot of times, even when they were a really good team. And so if – you have to make the choice to commit this guy for like four years or let him go. I totally understand saying, you know what, like let's let's try something else. Let's let's move on a little bit. The thing I'm a little more confused about is why Nate McMillan and not somebody else. Maybe you can shed some light on that. The biggest thing is that I don't I don't know how much Larry wanted to change as far as you know he he loves the defense and it it was you know really <laughs> been been real interesting how um, once Frank left you know he. Bird just kept talking about assistant coach Dan Burke, who's been here for through every coach that Bird's been around, was really the guy that ran the defense and made it work. And I, and I think there were a lot of things that he didn't want to change um, and didn't want to disrupt things too much with Frank leaving. So bringing in McMillan was was one way of of kind of keeping um, a lot of the principles in place that they liked, and then. Um, the push, though, to be a faster team, as McMillan said, it didn't matter who the coach was going to be. They're going to be doing that because that's what he wants. Um, and I, I wonder if if that situation turned down a lot of uh, or turned off a lot of potential other coaches um, who may have wanted the job. So, you know, we'll never know. But I know 
at least Paul and, and some other players were were um, aware of what was going on with, with me, and he uh, they they support him, and and he's he's they almost I mean even Monte he's you know they seem like they were thirsting for a little more discipline and and um, and you know the accountability piece, and I think maybe it helps knowing mate a little bit more and being able to take that from from the go but it seemed like a a, a pretty big risk but um you know i i've followed mcmillan's history quite a bit being from seattle and i always thought he did a great job coaching teams to be better than than expected yeah they were slow maybe not fun to watch but um, as he said <laughs> as he said they were they were young teams they were you know he was trying to play the cards he was dealt but, uh, you know, it, it's a matter of a little more of that drill sergeant type attitude. We'll see how long the players continue to want that. You know, that's always a, a shelf life on that. So it, it, it was kind of a curious hire, but it seems to be a good fit so far, at least with, with you know, the players remaining on the team team and, and what they're trying to do. So do you think there's extra pressure being a coach with Larry Bird over your shoulder? The kind of and similar to like the Hornets have had a number of coaches uh, since Michael Jordan took over as their president in operations there and whatnot. They got so, the one they want now. That's the important. They do. Thing. They do. I mean, and hopefully that's the case here with with McMillan. Um, I feel like there has to be slightly added pressure. Larry Bird sitting two rows behind you every game. Obviously, yeah. a strong opinion basketball man. Yeah, and you know, he makes it a point when things aren't going the way he thinks they should be going to drop some quotes that um, <laughs> are not veiled. <laughs> um, right. and, uh, and, you know, sometimes it's as a players, but, you know, usually it's kind of at the coach. So um, he's not, he's not afraid to, to uh, say in person, but also to put it out there in the public. So, I, um, yeah, that, that definitely has to be a, a dynamic to <laughs> think about for a coach. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it was an interesting offseason if we're going to stick with the Larry Bird uh, dynamic here. I mean, a uh, bunch of moves. We actually had a really good question uh, that was that was sent our way that can kind of tee this off. And we appreciate these questions. Uh, every time listeners send these, they help us make these podcasts better. So this one was from Daniel Nowak, and it's a good one. So let's tee this up into all the offseason moves. He said, question for the Pacers podcast. Why aren't more people putting the Pacers in the conversation for the second best team in the East? They have by far the second best player in the Eastern Conference. A little subjective, but probably true. Surrounded by a very solid supporting cast. Teague and Young are better than Hill and Mahimi. Why doesn't anyone trust Larry Bird? So let's talk about those offseason moves and that trust with Larry Bird. Prada, which of those offseason moves do you think were most important? And then, Tom, tell me where those fit in. Can I say none of them? <laughs> I'm, I'm just, it was, a, I thought, a, a bit of a curious set of moves, although uh, I suppose I can see where it might work out. I, I'm a big George Hill fan. Uh, I'm one of the bigger George Hill backers, so perhaps my thoughts on this are a little misplaced, but I'm not sure Jeff Teague is a better player than him. Certainly is a different player, and I, I don't quite understand how the Teague-Ellis backcourt is supposed to guard anybody. You know, But Jeff Teague's a good player. I mean, I think you could say perhaps that uh, Teague is necessary because you need another playmaker, and they really didn't have very many of those, and at least this maybe takes the ball out of Monte's hands a little bit more. I think the Monte offense got a little a little inefficient last year. They get Thad Young for the 20th pick. I think Thad Young is a pretty good player who will help them a little bit. I'm not quite sure where he plays. Is he going to start? Are they going to start small? Or are you going to bring him off the bench? I think that's an open question. 
Uh, and then they bring in Al Jefferson. Uh, a lot of people are kind of rolling their eyes at that one. That one seems to make a little bit more sense he, if he's a second unit player. But if you're planning to start him, I, I find it hard to believe you're going to play fast. So it's just I wonder if some of these moves really fit the stated goal of what the team is actually trying to do. Are they really? Does this really help them play faster and, and quicker and more decisively and have a better offense when they probably become a worse perimeter shooting team and they've definitely I think become a worse defensive team. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely a worse perimeter shooting team. That's um, Unless C.J. Miles gets hot for the whole year, they really they really don't have a guy that you can think of that's going to come in and, and light it up. But I don't, I don't know that they're particularly focusing on, you know, trying to gun a bunch of threes. You know, they, they'll probably play the personnel. They do want to play fast. They want to push the ball off of defense. Um, but again, like you say, uh, Dan Burke, <clears throat> assistant coach, is going to have to, be ready for a Hall of Fame potential um, if he can get some of these older guys who <laughs> who haven't necessarily been uh, defensive stalwarts to, to buy into his team system. Um, but overall, I, I think the reason any you know it's, it seems like there's a lot of people who you know maybe don't think the Pacers can win 40, or and then I hear other people say, oh, they should win 50 because they have that same opinion that well, you got rid of. Um, George Hill Mahimi and and um, putting in with Miles and, and uh, Teague, they're better, um, and, and Thaddeus Young. But I think the, uh, the the variables that you mentioned are, are why there's doubt. I mean, even yeah. with Jeff Teague was up until camp, like, you know, he had a meniscus issue. Is, issue. is his knee going to hold up? You know, a, a lot of these guys are veteran players that have some sort of injury history. Are they going to hold up? Um, the, the good thing about Jefferson, they're definitely bringing him off the bench, and he sounds like he doesn't want to do anything else. I don't. I think he, he's aware that at this point, he can't play a full load as a as a starter, and he's kind of looking forward to not only playing that reserve role, but being able to go to work on the reserve big men. Sure. <laughs> um, so, I, I think they have the pieces. I, I do like the bench a lot better, and they got a lot of veteran guys, and I think that was a big thing to help with Paul George is to have guys who have been around the game know the game. And they can work with that, um, and and try and mix and match. They they do have some depth. The problem is that the depth is there's a lot of um, overlap, you know, with combo guards, and right. then you got some big men, but they're not really stretch fours, you know. So if you're trying to spread the floor and, and play quicker that way, yeah, you know, um, you're you're kind of hoping Thaddeus Young turns into flips his career into uh, Sam Perkins mode, but. That's the thing, though. You, you raise a really good. It's like so they have now they have Teague Ellis and Rodney Stuckey and Aaron Brooks, kind of a, a lot of the same types of players. They have Miles Turner, Thad Young, Lavoy Allen, Kevin Serafin, uh, Al Jefferson. None of those guys have a perimeter shot. And on the wing, because of they, I think foolishly did not pick up Solomon Hill's option. Kind of would be nice to have him around this year because they really have George and then they have CJ Miles and then what else do they have on the wing? So there's so much overlap in in personnel. I, I I'm not sure I, I I really see this summer propelling. I know they got better on paper, but I don't really see the pieces fitting all that well. Well, as bad as they might be with the perimeter defense, I do think that Paul George, Young, and Turner present a pretty nice long young core inside at least for uh for maybe guarding what the new nba might deem a power forward or center you know what i'm saying and then being able to flip kind of a completely different pace with al jefferson on that second unit does present sort of a nice in-game adjustment if you want to or have to make it they kind of have 
I'm trying to play devil's advocate here, guys. They do have some options. It's not like uh, I think the depth could actually work out. And hey, CJ Miles won't have to play power forward, being six foot six and not wanting and and not being able to jump. Um, so that'll be a nice place for him not to have to fill in. Want to ask your thoughts, um, Tom? We had a good question from loyal listener TM Warning. Always sends us great questions. Do you think that those moves have sacrificed some of the potential and or long term flexibility of the franchise? Yeah, I don't, I don't really think so. If okay. I'm right now, that basically at the salary floor, and obviously they're going to have a big um, check to write to Paul George if he wants to, <laughs> um, either next summer or or the year after. Um, hopefully next summer. Um, <laughs> the other wild card in there though is is Teague. They're they're going to have to sign him, uh, bite the bullet and sign him. If if um, in fact it's kind of surprising they haven't yet. So. Um, <laughs> they have the money gonna, to, do they not? I mean, I yeah, they, they, do. Left yeah. It, they left it open. Yeah, they, they, they've got, that's what I'm saying. I mean, they're right at the floor right now. And I mean, they even signed a couple of guys who guaranteed deals who aren't going to be on the roster. I think just because they're right there, but yeah, it's almost like they're going to get teagued for a test drive here, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I, I really, I really thought after that deal was made, they were going to be doing something else. I thought M- Monte Ellis is a whole big old different story as well. Um, and I've been just surprised that he's still on the team after um, hearing some things at media day and and um, and from him and other people, it makes more sense that he's here now. But if he wasn't going to be moved, it seemed like and again we're talking about that overlap. Somebody would be moved, um, and that hasn't happened yet. So nothing's going to surprise me here before the start of the, the season with that. But again, we're you know, I can't remember where I was going with this point, but um, <laughs> but the uh, long term, I, I, long term. I think long term, the um, I think they have it. You know, obviously, Miles Turner and Paul George are, are their, their focal points, and then everybody else this year, next year, and then you after that. You know, they're going to be plenty flexible. Sure. And let's let's dissect those players you just mentioned. I think that's important, and we've gone long enough without getting into Paul George and Miles Turner. Um, Prada, I want to. I want you to first tell me where you think Paul George sits in that hierarchy. Um, we just heard, you know, from from a listener here that he is the the second best player in the Eastern Conference. Tell me what you think about that, and then Tom, why don't you follow up and tell me what steps he needs to take to really cement himself in that position? Yeah, it sounds about right. Although, <laughs> okay. So when Paul George is on, I, I the thing I, I need to see a little bit more from him is that he just. Uh, I know he was hurt a little bit. He was coming back from injury last year. But he had these stretches where he was incredible, certainly early in the season and then that playoff series. And then he had stretches where he shot poorly. He was much less consistent. And I think he has a tendency to sort of force the issue on both ends. Now, one upside to these moves is that at least now they have guy, some guys who can make – who are better playmakers that maybe he won't have to feel that way. And I, I think he was an advocate of Jeff, of, of Jeff Teague in particular for that reason. But, and he's a great defensive player. I just, I think that, and he played amazingly in the Olympics. And so this is a big year for him, I think to really establish himself, but I've yet to kind of see there, there's a level he can reach. I think where he's one of the very, very best players in the game, like higher than top 10. But I think there's also too many moments where he's sort of, not quite at that level, and he's trying to do too much, and he's clanking uh, mid-range jumpers and struggling to finish. And I think he needs to be a little more consistent for me to say, you know, no doubt top ten player. You know, and there's some contenders for that second in the East. Um, Who else is know. there? Well, I think Kyle Lowry is someone that last year was 
was right up there. I think if John Wall has a better season, he's up there. I think Kyrie Irving is someone in the discussion. You know, there there are other guys uh, in that in that mix. So, you know, I guess it's a good it's to answer the question. It's sort of a we'll see how he whether he's consistent enough. You know, I I think this is a big year for him, and he seems like I mean, if you look if you if you watch the Olympics, and he was a key player for them, and they were raving yeah, about his efforts. So this might be his time. And what what are those next steps that you'd like to see being on the ground and and, and watching this team every day, uh, Tom? That you think you'd like to see him make? Yeah, well, I mean, Mike is spot on. I mean, consistency, the, the maintaining that level of play. You know, like he played. You know, I don't know if he could play like he played in that Raptor series <laughs> for eighty two, <laughs> but at least approaching that and, and not having the big dips. You know, and yep. not not like going away for a few games. Um, that that's the biggest thing. And and with him, you know, a lot of times. Occasionally, there have been body language or just you know sloppy with the ball. Um, but, you know, there's a great clip from the the first practice of uh, of uh, Nate McMillan admonishing the team about somebody had driven into traffic, and turned the ball over, and he mm-hmm. stopped. It was a defensive drill, but he stopped it to make a point that you know that's an effing turnover, as he said, and you know we're not driving into two people. If you got two people on, you pass the ball. It's an easy game. And and that was like first person you think of oh, Paul George trying to split double team with a loose dribble, you know, mm-hmm. seen it seen it seen it way too many times, and then looking for a foul, and then yeah, you, know, you know the whole <laughs> that whole thing. So, um, but I, I got to tell you, his speaking of body language and, and carrying himself, and he just seemed like a different person last week, and um, I really think that Olympic experience infused him with a, a little more of. Uh, a little more juice to the point where he's always talked about feeling like he's a top, you know, top five player in the league and, and on LeBron's level. And, and, but you know, did he really believe it? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But I think, I think now maybe he kind of believes it more and understands more what he has to do to maintain that level. And, and mm-hmm. really that consistent level of play um, and, and taking care of the ball, being smart, not giving up possessions, not giving up games, you know, um, is, uh, is is the next step for him. You make a really good point about the Olympics experience, kind of seeing the other players and how hard they work. And George has had an interesting journey. Obviously, nobody expected him to be this kind of player. He was a role player for a couple of years, and he's then emerged as a star. And last year, he was sort of the last guy standing, and this year, he very much is the last guy standing. I just think he makes life harder on himself sometimes. And that goes to some of the moves he makes, the the splits the double team, that goes to some of the shots he takes. He's not a particularly efficient scorer, and I think it's because he just takes a lot of tough shots. And last year, there were, I thought, a lot of times where he pressed, uh, and I wonder... Perhaps if if you're going to look for some upside into the summer moves, and I like I I think I indicated earlier, I'm not a particularly huge fan of what the Pacers did this summer because I don't really see the pieces fitting. But the hope is that maybe now he'll feel less pressure to have to do everything because they have Jeff Teague who can get into the lane. They have Thad Young who can make a play a little bit better than what they had last year. They have Al Jefferson even to kind of throw the ball in the post. I wonder if that will maybe calm down some of those tendencies to do too much because that's, to me, the biggest thing he la- that separates him from the top. I mean, it's consistency, but it's also just these moments where he's like taking these really crazy shots or he kind of predetermines like, I've got to shoot this time. 
you know, yeah. and stuff like that. Even on defense, as great a defender as he is, and he's a great defender, there are moments where he will pressure too hard or play a passing lane or do try to kind of play defensive hero ball, as I say it. I think he just needs to trust the team a little bit more. And so that's the next step for him. And maybe being around the Olympics where he's not the best player on the team, he has to play a role. He has to kind of fit in with the rest of the talent that's there. Maybe that will be a really good experience for him. And that kind of goes back to his loose dribble or whatever I talk about, but a little widen it out a little bit. He, he struggles creating his own shot when there's nothing going on. Um, and like you say, ends up forcing really nothing good ever comes of it. Um, so, so having those guys that can slash in the middle and kick and, and give him the ball with maybe one guy to beat or just to make an easy move to get a shot off um, should really help him out. So many times you get late in the late in the clock and he's got the ball in the wing and it's like oh boy this is going to be a prayer and uh, he's not afraid to shoot it but um, <laughs> it, it's not it's not good for the Pacers. <laughs> well, so if we've established that Paul this is Paul George's team, okay, I think that's pretty clear um, from an obvious perspective here. He's the best player on the team. One of the players who might be taking that next step to being his Robin, if you will, I believe is Miles Turner. And that seems to be, when we ask for, you know, fan questions here from Pacers fans, it seems to be pretty unanimous that that's the player who most fans want to see make the next jump. I personally worry a little bit with a guy like Teague and a guy like Monte Ellis that maybe Turner won't get the touches that he needs to take that next step. But I'd love for, uh, for you to kind of tell us a little bit about where you see him progressing and what you'd like to see from him. We had a question from uh, at N.O. Carter, who uh, sends us good questions all the time. Keep them coming, buddy. Um, what is Miles Turner's ceiling? And he says, am I the only one who thinks he's a perennial all-star? So take me through where you see Miles Turner going this year with the new pieces around him and, and where you'd like to see him progress in year two. Uh, he, he's going to be a big part of what they do. And to me, again, that's another variable that's kind of scary because he's only 20. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now he's going to be playing in the middle. He's going to be defending the rim. He's a great, great defensive instincts. He's a little too um, – his problem is so he's a little too aggressive uh, going after block shots sometimes, and that can get him into foul trouble. Sure. Um, but uh, he's he can go up and get it. Um, and he's got a good perimeter shot. Um, he's, you know, quick. He, he needs to develop a, maybe some go-to post-up moves. Um, and that's one thing I know Al Jefferson was excited to work with him on. Yeah, he's a good uh, so guy to teach that for sure. Hopefully, hopefully he'll give him a couple. Um, but uh, but he is uh, he's one of the sharpest you know kids I've ever seen come in. He's he he gets it on all levels. Uh, he's really driven to improve. His looks like his body's improved. He was looked like a nineteen year old kid last year. I mean, he's big, but he wasn't really defined or anything. He's moving in that direction. The ceiling is is high. He should he should be striving to be an all star perennially uh, but the the fact that they're kind of relying on him a lot this year is makes me nervous because if you you know even if you say he averaged 15 points and eight rebounds which would be right. a great season for him you know i think there's like been 10 or 11 guys that have done that at age 20 <laughs> in the league so um that's a lot to ask and i i, I do I, again one one thing bird did that i like is um with with the swapping these guys out, almost all the guys you brought in were veteran guys, pros, pros, and yep. and um, that helps uh, a lot. And, and it's going to help Turner be able to play alongside guys who who have that experience. And and even you know like Fab Young and and Al were in the league at twenty 
you know, so they didn't know exactly what he was going through. So that that part should help. I mean, everything is kind of set up for him to succeed. You know, there don't seem to be any health issues. He, he The problem, one problem is the one guy you would want in there all the time right now would be Turner. He's been, he hasn't practiced yet because he got, got hit with an elbow in a scrimmage before camp started and, and mm. is still in the uh, concussion protocol. So not only does that hurt his, him, but also, I mean, that starting unit trying to come together with, with new faces, they haven't been able to play all together yet. So sure. um, hopefully I'll be ready to go this week, though, and, and start getting going. Yeah, I mean, he, he feels like the type of new age, dynamic, stretch four center who can, you know, take a guy, can guard maybe, uh, call it Porzingis, outside and inside. Um, but one of my questions that I guess, and, and Prada, you can probably answer this better. There are a lot of good young big men in the NBA right now, and not all of them have an old all-star right behind them in Al Jefferson or a similar kind of stretch power forward guy like a LaVoy Allen right behind him and the Thaddeus Young. Shout out to having two 76ers on your team. Um, <laughs> always always a good sign to have those two, although I actually do like both of them. Um, and LaVoy is a Philly through-and-through through guy, Temple University. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, but uh, So I feel like there's some interesting pressures on this team. Like it... Mike, do you see a situation here where Miles maybe comes back a little late from this concussion, miss, misses some of this maybe preseason chemistry work, and then finds himself in a weird, I'm young, I, I think I'm, I've earned this position, but there's a lot of pressure on me from even internally on my, my own roster? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a little worried, like Tom said, that they're relying on him for so much. When yeah. you look at uh, defensively, like who is anchoring the rim other than him? And Turner got incredible potential there. But he was very raw last year. I think he got kind of shoved around a lot in the playoffs and all season. He's just he's just young and nineteen. You know, it's understandable. So, and I, I would say that when he had his most success last year is when he was playing with Yamahimi as a four. And occasionally you'd see flashes of him showing what he could be as a stretch five. But you know, he's nineteen. He wasn't all the way there yet. So now, look, long term, that was a great draft pick. He's got incredible ton of upside. He's going to be a really good player. I don't know about perennial all star, but really. Really, really good player. Like I think there, uh, he could be on the level of uh, poor Zingas. Uh, I don't know if he's quite that good, but he's he's got that sort of potential if he can stretch his range a little bit more. You know, if he can sort of bulk up a little bit and not too much too soon. If he can maybe improve his quickness a little bit, I think I don't know if I see him as a great switching out onto perimeter players yet. But they need him to do all those things on this team. Otherwise, I'm not sure how they're going to defend. You know, they have. He's going to have to cover for a lot of people. And I think that, look, if he can do it, then the Pacers are in real, really in business for now and in the future because he's still so young. But I agree, it's asking a lot of him. And, you know, I don't know if he's up to it at this, if you can expect him to be up to it at this point. Yeah. And I will say, you mentioned how he has a good head on his shoulders. I've always been blown away by how articulate and how introspective he is. He seems to answer questions when they're asked to him. I remember um, at the Jordan Brand All-American game a couple years back, he didn't play in it, but he was in attendance. Um, he didn't play it, I think, because at that point he was the only undecided player in the country or the top-ranked undecided player in the country um, before he decided to go to Texas. And and I, I found it really interesting that he still showed up to do the media part, to answer questions and, and to kind of put his... Um, you know, his thoughts out there. So I do like players like that. Obviously that works 
both ways sometimes. Sometimes the better, the dumber you are, the less uh, aware you are of your mistakes, <laughs> yes. the better you play. And the smarter you are, the more you uh, self-evaluate. Um, as a former, you know, as a tennis player, that's like 101 type stuff. Sometimes <laughs> the dumbest guys are the best players um, because they're just not thinking about the mistakes they're making and they're moving past uh, their issues. Um, but we'll see what happens there. I- I'm definitely intrigued by him. I like him a lot as a player. Um, I mean, Sixers picked Okafor, what, seven, eight picks ahead of him. Um, so He's a better player feel, than Okafor. He is a better player, yeah, <laughs> definitively, um, which kills me. But, you know, let's not write Okafor's book yet, Mike. Um, so, um, <laughs> but uh, that does, we did have one more question here about the roster complexion before we kind of get to predictions. Um, we had a question from Joe Betts. Um, who do you think forces their way into the 10th man, sort of the end of the rotation, uh, and a player who might end up getting more minutes than we've even, uh, that we're expecting, who maybe we haven't mentioned yet? I'm thinking along the lines of Joe Young, uh, Glenn Robinson, Serafin, Jeremy Evans, Keem Christmas. Are any of these guys going to get minutes and eventually play? Well, yeah, I thought it was real interesting. Within five minutes of his media day press conference, uh, McMillan named, you know, listed his starting lineup and his reserve rotation <laughs> as if there was, there was nothing to play for in camp. Um, and it was all the veteran guys that they brought in, um, which left out, you know, Joe Young, uh, Glenn Robinson, George Niang, the rookie who yep. could be a stretch four type guy. And then Serafin, I know they're really high on him. So he's a guy who may get in there ahead of, ahead of one of those four guys uh, for sure, depending upon how they're playing um, mm-hmm. as a reserve guy. When we talk about all those combo guards, that's Joe Young. They're really high on him on, on the work he's done. He's playing well, but he's a, he's he's Aaron Brooks. He's he's uh, you know Stucky Monte, all those guys. I think the the guy out of that group who I I kind of think they're hoping will like seize it um, is Glenn Robinson the third because as we mentioned earlier, they need some more wing um, depth or, or options at least. His biggest thing has been confidence, assertiveness. You know, he showed flashes a few times when he got to play last year of just being completely dynamic, um, great player. And he's really been good in camp so far. Had a great summer, but he's going to have to uh, he's going to have to get the opportunity. And then when he gets it, just let it rip. I, I guess if I had to pick one guy to get get in that tenth slot, would be uh, Glenn Robinson uh, at this point. So. It's interesting that they have this depth of players and, and they could rest guys if they need to and, and give different people different opportunities. <laughs> but again, as we mentioned earlier, it, it still doesn't always fill all the needs they have, yeah. despite all the depth. Mike, you know Glenn Robinson pretty well, right? I, I guess so. Sure. He's <laughs> <laughs> been a little, had a cup of tea with your team, I think, I believe. No, draft yeah. day trade. <laughs> Don't believe so. Oh, uh, no, you're thinking of you're thinking of Glenn oh, Rice Jr. I'm thinking of Glenn Rice Jr. You know, I'm getting my sons of NBA players exactly. mixed up again. <laughs> That's right. And Glenn Rice was, uh, yeah, yeah. If Glenn Rice can play, that would be great because you know, need someone <laughs> to fill the Solomon Hill void. Or Glenn they, Rice, they yeah, Glenn Robinson. I just did it. it yeah. <laughs> I thought you meant like actual Glenn Rice, like like circa 1995 oh, yeah. Miami Heat or something like that, Glenn Rice. I bet, I bet Larry's trying to figure out how to sign him. He's all the vets. He'd be the, <laughs> he'd be the perfect player for this team, if we're going to be honest. Great shooter, little stretch four in the NBA now. He came, just came about a decade too early. Yeah, well, so are we all. <laughs> yeah, right? Story <laughs> of my life, man. I was a six-foot-three point guard. I would have been a power forward in 1956. <laughs> um, but uh, cool. So let's get to some predictions where we get to have our uh, our – our beautiful guests make predictions on the record, which is always fun. Last year, the Pacers were a good team. Uh, Mike established 45 and 37. Whether that met expectations, exceeded them, that's to be determined. Um, but 
this year there are some expectations, and I believe Vegas has them at lower, as in lower expectations than last year, stating them at about 43 and a half wins is where they've been projected. Tom, you can go first, and then Mike will come over the top. Maybe he'll be optimistic. Maybe he'll be pessimistic. We don't know yet. But where do you think the Pacers land this year? Last year, that record was good enough to get them that seven seed. Do you think they're better than 43 and a half wins? Do you think they're better than they were last year? And where do you see this season ending? I do think they're better than 43 and a half. And as we mentioned, on a lot of levels, on paper, whatever you want to say, I think they're, they have the potential to be better um, overall. So I, I'm going to remain positive and um, – <laughs> And understanding all the caveats we've been through of potential problems, I'm thinking 46 wins solidly in the playoffs. And, uh, you know, it could go better. It could go far worse, obviously. Um, but assuming everybody kind of stays healthy, I think expecting big things from Paul George, and that's, that's going to help pull along everybody else and, and at least get them at least one game better. All right. Mike, what do you think? I'm I'm struggling to balance my optimism for Paul George's season and the kind of season he could have with my pessimism for how the rest of this roster was assembled cuz I just there's just so little they have so many holes with the some of the guys they have and I've never been the biggest Jeff Teague fan I just I just don't think there's anything all that special about him I think the Hawks system made him look a lot better he's not a good defender he did have a good shooting season last year but I I wouldn't say that he's a guy that would scare me as a shooter uh, he's a very creative driver, but I'm not sure where the space is for him. So I'm not sure that that's a better fit than George Hill was providing that spacing and letting Monte Ellis kind of handle the ball a little bit more. I, I don't really see how that works. Uh, Thad Young is a good player. I don't really see, again, though, who he fits in with. And, you know, I don't see them having – I mean, last year they were the third-best defensive team in the league. I think there's it's reasonable to think that they could fall at least 10 spots based on what they've lost. You know, I, I think it would be very, very difficult for them to be a top ten defense again. And then I, I don't know if I see them approaching the top ten in offense. Really, I mean, I know they have more talent, but I'm not sure they have efficient talent. And I, I don't quite know how that's going to work. So it's having, I'm having trouble predicting this team because I, I do think that this is going to be a big year for Paul George, and I am very much a best player carries a team forward further than they should person in terms of how I think of this. So. I don't know. I think I'm just going to split the difference and think they're going to be right around where they were last year. I, I actually think 43 and a half is not a bad number. I, I think they'll make the playoffs. I find it hard to believe they won't. But I, I don't see this big jump up to the second tier. I mean, there are a lot of teams in the middle, even maybe the Wizards, that I like. I think just have a more cohesive team that makes more sense than these Pacers do. Um, so I, I think I'll split the difference and say they're you know, 44, 43, 45, and 6 or 7 seed again. All right. All right. So I, two years ago, the Wizards were the five seed, I believe, that they were 46 and 36. So last year, the Pacers were the seven seed with one less win. Um, the Eastern Conference obviously has started to uptick and get a little bit better, which is which is a big part of this. Right. Forty five wins is a good season. I do think that they are better this season than they were last season. I actually think we're kind of discrediting a little bit of what Thad Young does to a total basketball team. He fills in a lot of gaps within a game um, that I think are kind of the, call them the intangibles that he brings to the table. Um, and, and look, if Paul George wants to prove and really prove something, uh, how good he truly is and where he sits in that hierarchy of the NBA, uh, no better way to do that than to lead your team into some home advantage in the first round. I think they're going to be about 46 wins, one game better than last year, and think that will sit them right around the four seed, four five in the East. Um, we'll see where that actually ends up landing them, depending on how some other teams play. We've talked about this huge middle of the Eastern Conference with a lot of teams to float around. 
Um, we've mentioned this on other podcasts, but there's just so much uncertainty with a number of teams. What will the Hawks be like? What will Miami be like? Um, you know, <laughs> will the Pistons be better? What will the Bulls be like? Will the Wizards get better? So there's so much uncertainty, but I think with the Pacers having that best player who is, I believe, the second best player in the Eastern Conference, trying to prove something, coming off the Olympics where I'm sure he told plenty of other superstars that he was with, I'm this good and I'm going to prove it. Um, no, I'm excited to see him try to do that. So I think they're going to be about 46 wins. And I think that'll be good enough to hopefully get them in that four or five matchup. Not really sure if it's home court or not, if they're the four or the five, but that's where I see them landing. Uh, Tom, have we missed anything that is really important to the Pacers fan base that we should be hitting on? No, I think, you know, I, I'm real excited for this season, even though I'm, I may not sound that excited about the roster or whatever, just because of the, <laughs> the massive change, <laughs> um, change in storylines, uh, because it, it really it, over the last, you know, three, four years, even those stretches of great play and then a lull and then great play at the end and then you know pretty good showing in the playoffs. I may sound spoiled, but having uh, having these different storylines and, and seeing it built around, you know, now, like we said earlier, it is Paul George's team and he seems ready for it to be his team. Um, that to me is the most exciting thing. So, but I'm still keeping an eye out for. Uh, a little tweak or two at some point between now and the end of the season. It seems like it, something has to be done. <laughs> some, <laughs> some, something isn't quite finished. So I'm um, yep. looking forward to seeing how it plays out. Cool. Nice. Well, this was good. Tom, you have your own podcast. That's correct, right? Locked on Pacers? Yeah, we just launched it actually on uh, Friday. It was the, uh, actually the 10th anniversary of starting up Indy Cornrows. And uh, so nice. why not start something new? So, uh, yeah, Locked <laughs> on Pacers on the Locked On Podcast Network. Cool. Um, so uh, be rolling those out here uh, quite frequently going nice. forward. Cool. Well, everyone, get a, go download that. Go subscribe to that. Uh, go find uh, find Tom on Locked On Pacers. Everyone, please, you are Pacers fans already. You probably are reading, already reading Indie Cornrows. But if you're not, go do that. Prado, who are we doing next with these uh, previews? Well, we got. I think we have a 14 block at 48 wins. Uh, next, <laughs> and we basically flipped the coin, and we decided that Miami is going first. So Miami is up next. They've won the limited upside lottery. Congratulations, Miami Heat fans. You're next. Um, but, uh, Tom, we really appreciate you coming on, man. We're recording this on a, on a Sunday afternoon. There's football happening. There's kids' what's practices what's, what's happening. Football? So, football? so yeah, that, it's this American sport where people bludgeoned each other, Mike. You'd, you'd like it. Um, but uh, Is that what they play in, uh, to keep people interested until the NBA season starts? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. That's okay. That's what it's a stopgap uh, from baseball to basketball. That's right. Mm, okay. <laughs> Just don't tell the hundred million people that sit down and watch football all day every on Sunday. I'm one of them. Um, well, but, uh, I have cool, no basketball Tom, really... to watch, so that, that's why. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. There was, and we should say, preseason started last night, and I believe a team that blew a three-one lead in the NBA Finals lost their first preseason game. Uh, yeah, but... I don't know how they're going to score. <laughs> after watching that game. We'll have to hold an emergency <laughs> podcast to, to dissect what's wrong with the Golden State Warriors after last night's <laughs> first preseason loss. Um, but, Tom, we really appreciate you coming on, making the time, man. This was a lot of fun. Very thorough uh, look into the Indiana Pacers. And whether or not we had the enthusiasm that Pacers fans also share, <laughs> I think that we did, did a good job of, uh, of breaking it down. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to this season starting just like you are. Prada, as hey. always, thanks for dropping the knowledge. And, and, Tom, thanks for coming on, man. All right, thanks, guys. That was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Right, you got it, bud. And uh, again, listeners, thank you so much for sending us those questions. As you can tell, they help us move it along. And until next time, 
Limited Upside Podcast.